Turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14. We have been working our way section by section through 1 Corinthians on Sunday mornings. And here in chapter 14, Paul is beginning to take the various threads of this fourth major section of the book, and he's tying them together to offer some practical conclusions. Really, the topic that's given rise to all of this is uh, the, the need for the Corinthian church to get some gospel instruction on how they ought to behave when they gather together for worship. And uh, we learned two weeks ago, based on 1 Corinthians 13, that the real problem was a gospel problem. They needed to further fully grasp the love of the Father for the Son as the basis of the love of Christians for one another. And then here in chapter 14, he's going to begin to take that gospel truth and apply it practically to the gathering. So with that uh, as background, let's go ahead and look at 1 Corinthians 14 and begin reading in verse 1. The apostle says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my, my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, nevertheless in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. 
In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me now in prayer? Father, we praise you for the depth of your love, a love that you shared between the councils of the Trinity from eternity past before the beginning of creation, a love that was and is unstoppable, unfathomable, unsearchable, and a love that serves as the basis for your plan that you carried out on Calvary, sending your own son so that we sinners who do not deserve your love, might be welcomed into your family. Father, I pray that as we begin to make some practical applications to the apostles' instruction this morning, that in the background of our minds, you would remind us of the love of the Father. And as we do that, Father, we're mindful uh, of what Jesus said, that uh, we, fathers here on earth, sinful though we may be, know how to give good gifts to our children. And so how much more will you give us the Holy Spirit when we ask? And so, Father, that's what we ask for today, that your Spirit would fall in power on Indian Creek Baptist Church and on the individuals who make up our body of believers, that you would cause us to be characterized not by spectacle, but by holiness, not by uh, a display of, of showy behavior, but by righteous behavior, and that you would give us a, a greater knowledge of you personally because you are with us as you promised. And so, Spirit of God, we pray, descend upon our hearts, wean them from earth, through all their pulses move. Stoop to my weakness, mighty as thou art, and help me love thee as I ought to love. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Very few things in life are more unsettling than sitting in your cubicle at your new job, knowing your family depends on you, knowing that you have to meet production and quality benchmarks in order to keep that job. Asking your leader for assistance on a difficult work item and being told nonchalantly and very rapidly that if you navigate to the PAPI screen and CI in order to copy the PID, then you'll have the information you need to update AE and then go to EPCR and you'll be able to recycle the enrollment in real time and then document your actions in CCP. Like, wait, what? Like, I... (laughs) I have to, in order to succeed at work, I have to understand all these acronyms and jargon. Many of us work in industries where the insider language, the the jargon is 
overwhelming. Some of you who work in the public school system, when I hear you talk about all the documentation that you need to complete, uh, I, I, I'm just, it's, actually, it's absolutely inscrutable to me. I, I don't understand what you're saying. You might as well be speaking a foreign language. The same goes for those of you who work in oil and gas or fix engines. Uh, the terminology is beyond my comprehension, and don't get me started on those of you who work in the medical field. Communication involves at least two people. One person talks or writes, and the other listens or reads. This is the bare minimum if you're going to communicate. You might be a tremendous carpenter, but if you want to teach your daughter how to build furniture, you better stay away from the technical language and use words that she can understand. Or communication isn't going to happen. If you, you might be the best uh, public speaker in the world, but if your entire audience doesn't speak English, they only speak Swahili, then it, it's not going to matter what you say because they don't understand. Uh, you might have something really valuable to communicate, but the listeners need to understand your language. It's kind of an obvious concept. But for some reason, we often miss this in the gathered worship of the church. People need to understand what's going on. Uh, and yet for centuries, priests used to utter their mysteries in Latin, the language that people didn't know how to speak. Churches today use Christianese that's almost as difficult to comprehend. And of course, in Corinth, they were all talking over each other and uttering the mysteries of the Spirit in indiscernible tongues without any explanation. And so in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul, what Paul is going to do in this passage is, is take, as I've said, all the threads that he's brought out in the, the last few chapters, and he's going to begin to kind of weave them together into some practical instructions that let us know how we're supposed to behave in the context of gathered worship. And if I can just boil down what he's saying in this chapter into one short sentence, I would say this. When we gather as a church, intelligible speech builds up, but incomprehensible spectacle just confuses. Intelligible speech builds up, but incomprehensible spectacle just confuses. In other words, part of the point of why we gather is so that God's people might be built up and so that unbelievers might come to know Christ. But if that's our goal, then intelligible speech is better than incomprehensible spectacle. This is the message that Paul wants to convey, and he frames it in terms of two very important spiritual gifts that were in operation in Corinth to varying degrees, namely the gift of speaking in tongues and the gift of prophecy. And so what we're going to do today is just sort of go through this chapter uh, in, in, in accordance with those two topics, the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. We'll consider each of them one by one. So think with me in the first place about the gift of tongues. Uh, apparently the gift of speaking in tongues was considered uh, the, the highest expression of spirituality by the Corinthian believers. They, uh, uh, and the reason for that is because if you go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 12, you remember what Paul acknowledged when he first started out in this major section. He said, when, when you were unbelievers before you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, you were led astray by various mute idols, however you were led. In other words, uh, if you were to visit a, an idol temple, 
in the first century in Corinth, you'd have been treated to a multi-sensory experience. They were, there were smells and sights and sounds all over the place. It was a very spectacular experience. And the Corinthians, the, the, the new believers there in Corinth, were tempted to value the same things that they had valued when they were worshiping idols, but they were bringing those values into the worship of the living God in the local church. So Paul has to tell them, you used to be led by these mute idols, but now your worship needs to reflect a new reality. The Holy Spirit isn't pleased with mere spectacle. He operates differently. He desires understanding. And and this is why the gift of prophecy is more useful in church than the gift of speaking in tongues. So we have to ask ourselves this question, what does he mean, speak in tongues? What does that mean? What is that referring to? Uh, Well, in the early church, there were at least two different types of phenomena that you might call speaking in tongues. Now, I'm going to go over this relatively quickly, a topic that you could write books and books about, okay? So we're going to have to make some generalizations and go pretty quick. You might want to grab your pen and write some of these passages in the margins of your Bible. But as I said, there are at least two phenomena that you might call speaking in tongues. The first is described in Acts chapter 2. So think about what happens in Acts chapter 2. The apostles... And the other followers of Christ, just a handful of people, are there in the t- in the, uh, uh, near the temple in Jerusalem, and they're waiting, as Jesus had told them to do, for the Holy Spirit to fall on them with power from on high. They arrive at the time for the Feast of Pentecost, a time when Jewish men and women from all over the known world had come to Jerusalem, and they all spoke in different languages, and uh, they're all gathered there for this Jewish Feast of Pentecost, and So just exactly what Jesus said would happen, happens. The Holy Spirit falls on this fledgling group of believers, and the apostles go out into the temple, and they begin to preach and proclaim Christ crucified. Jesus is the King. Jesus is the Messiah. And those men that are gathered there in the temple, they're from all these different places in the known world, speaking different languages as their first language. And all these people hear the message of the gospel in their heart's language, in their home language. And, and so one person hears the message of Jesus in, in Latin and another in Greek and another in, uh, you know, uh, uh, Gallic or, or whatever languages they spoke back then. Okay, I don't know which ones were there. But it's a miracle because the apostles are all from Galilee. They might have known a little bit of Greek, but certainly they didn't know all those other languages. And so this is a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit of God. He empowers the apostles to speak in languages that are known to the hearers, but not known to the speaker. It would be as if I stood up and began preaching in perfect French or German to people who spoke those languages. I don't know either of those languages. That would be an incredible miracle of the Holy Spirit. So that's one way of speaking in tongues recorded for us in the book of Acts. And actually, when I first began studying theology, I was taught that that's really actually the only way uh, that, that the gift of speaking in tongues manifests itself in the local church. But it seems to me that as I've studied 1 Corinthians, that Paul is describing a slightly different type of phenomenon here in 1 Corinthians 14. And there are a couple of clues that, that seem to me to indicate that. So let's look at those together. First of all, notice what he says in verse 2. He says, one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to who? He speaks to God. Okay, that's different, right? Uh, Another similar 
statement uh, appears in verses 14 and 15. He says, if I pray in a tongue, what's prayer? It's speaking to whom? It's speaking to God. So there's a difference. In Acts 2, they're speaking to men. Here in 1 Corinthians 14, they're speaking to God. He also says in verse 4, that one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. Well, that's different from what was going on in Acts chapter 2. They were not speaking for the benefit of themselves. They were speaking for the benefit of the listeners in Acts chapter 2. So the apostle seems to be describing something that's a little different. So what I'm saying is that there are at least two types of tongues speaking. And here in 1 Corinthians, the second type appears to be in view. And here's the best way I can describe. And keep in mind, I don't personally possess this spiritual gift, okay, in case you were wondering. Uh, So I'm not speaking from experience here. I'm going to describe it the best way that I possibly can. Speaking in tongues, this second type anyway, is a kind of spirit-empowered, vocal, meaningful communication that goes beyond words. It's a type of spirit-empowered, vocal, meaningful communication that goes beyond words. I would also say that there are likely variations of this. Remember, in in the last several weeks, we've seen Paul's intention in this passage is not to describe or even to list every single spiritual gift that exists. So we can assume that there's some breadth to what the Spirit is doing in the local church. There may be some variation to how this manifests itself in the local church. Uh, In Acts, you could have translated the message from one language to another, pretty much sentence for sentence or word for word. But I I don't know that all tongues speaking is that specific. Uh, So let me give you an illustration. And again, I I don't speak from experience uh, because I don't personally possess this spiritual gift. And I'm not trying to be disrespectful with this illustration. I'm just trying to help you understand. Uh, But uh, I remember a time, my kids, I have four kids, and the youngest is 10 years old, okay? So my kids are a little bit older now, but I remember a time when my kids were babies. And there was a time when I, even as a, a dad who didn't notice a whole lot, right? Dads who can relate. Okay, nobody, okay, it's just, just me. But I remember, even as a dad, there was a time when I, if I heard a baby cry, I could tell you not only which child of mine it was, or whether it was my child and which one it was, I could also tell you just by hearing that cry, not seeing their face, I could tell you, for the most part, what that cry meant, right? How many of you know what I'm talking about, all right? You hear baby cry, okay, that's uh, Chelsea, and I can tell she's hungry, or that's Austin, and I can tell he is angry because he doesn't want to have to go to bed, or something like that, okay? Uh, We can tell there's no subject, verb, and direct object. There's no sentences being communicated, but we can tell that there's communication. There's meaningful content being conveyed to us, and I can kind of interpret the meaning of that content even though it goes beyond words. And it seems to me that that's maybe a little bit like an all-analogies breakdown, so please don't understand me to be uh, disrespectful to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but it seems to me that that is analogous or illustrative of perhaps what the Holy Spirit does in some people's lives. Uh, Now, if you don't have that gift, uh, this gift that the Holy Spirit gives to believers, for some believers to, to sort of express their heart's affections to God, uh, and if you don't have that gift, that's okay. 
Remember, that's Paul's whole point in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Not everybody is a hand. Not everybody is an eyeball. There are diversities of gifts of the Holy Spirit in the church. But if you do have that gift, and forgive me if, I, if you feel like I've not described it properly, uh, then it truly com- and it truly comes from the Holy Spirit, then I don't look down on that. I rejoice in what God has given to believers. But the question that Paul wants to answer here in this passage is this. How does a gift like that operate in the context of the gathering of God's people, like when we're all in the same room together? Well, and I think you've seen this very clearly as we've read through, generally speaking, it's not appropriate for gathered worship to come, to, for someone to come up and, and to exercise that gift uh, so that all people can hear. Paul says, I'd rather you prophesy as opposed to speaking in tongues. But here's a question, why is it not appropriate for gathered worship? Why is it that Paul's saying prophecy is better in the gathered worship than tongues? Well, it's very simple. It's because speaking in tongues doesn't really build anybody else up. Speaking in tongues doesn't uh, edify anybody. It might build you up personally as an individual, but it doesn't help anybody else. But then you could ask uh, again and go, go further, and you could say, well, why doesn't it build anybody up? And again, the, the answer to that is very simple. It's because nobody understands what you're saying. So the, the whole point is, if, if the church, God's goal, when we gather together, is that believers would be built up. How are we going to be built up? Well, I have to at least understand what's going on. I have to at least understand what's being said. Look at verse 10. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, Paul says, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. If, if I don't know what you're saying, then that communication is useless to me because in order for me to be built up in my faith, in order for me to be convicted of my sin, in order for me to be comforted in my affliction, in order for me to know God's character better, something has to take place in me on the level of my understanding. I have to grasp it mentally and intellectually in order for me to really benefit from that. Now, there can be emotions involved, There should be affections involved, but if it bypasses my brain, then I'm not benefiting from that at all. I'm not being built up in my faith, and unbelievers aren't going to be convicted of their sin and come to Christ because the Holy Spirit doesn't bypass the, 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 the intellect. He builds us up through our minds. Now, we speak this way, right? We say things like, well, you know, I think it's time to bring little Janice into the worship service. Well, why do you think she's ready to do it? Well, I think she can get something out of it. Well, why do you think she can get something out of it? I think she can understand a little bit of what's going on, right? We, we speak this way because we know that it just, if, if, you, if you're going to be built up, you've got to understand what's going on. Now, keep in mind, this, this may be like super obvious to everybody in this room, but if you were, if you were living in Corinth in the first century, this would have been, Maybe not so obvious. This was very different from the animistic or polytheistic assumptions of the Corinthians' neighbors. You go to the idol temple, the priest kills a sheep or a goat, he pulls out the liver or the, you know, the entrails, he looks at them, he utters some things that you don't really understand, and he doesn't care. 
He doesn't care whether you understand what's going on. It's about what's uh, it's about placating the deity. But here, in in, in the the worship of the living God. Uh, there is no need to placate God because Christ has already done that. That what's needed is for us to understand and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ because that's when the worship of God takes place. Paul's saying communication only works when people understand it. It's about conveying feelings, ideas, truths. It's not a magical thing. It's a moment of understanding, since no one else can understand the utterances that you speak in tongues, whether it's a known language or perhaps the wordless cries of praise and prayer, it doesn't help anybody if we don't understand what you're saying. So the point of this gathering is for people to draw near to God in Christ so we don't do things that aren't going to impact those people and help them understand what's going on. You say, okay, well, can you give me some practical applications of that? Just real quick, uh, I think there are some several practical takeaways for us regarding the subject of speaking in tongues. First of all, uh, as I've already kind of said, uh, speaking in tongues doesn't need to ever take center stage in public worship. Speaking in tongues doesn't ever need to take center stage in public worship. Remember, the foundation is already built. And I know it took center stage in Acts chapter 2, but understand that we're not apostles. Those apostles were given a specific task of building a foundation. The Holy Spirit's already completed the building of the foundation, so he's not going to bring a jackhammer and jackhammer it up with every generation and let you rebuild it again. He did a good job the first time, and so we're building on top of the foundation, and that's going to look a little bit different from Pentecost. There are similarities There are analogies, but it's not equal. It's not exactly the same. Uh, Okay, so enough said. Uh, Tongues doesn't need to take center stage in the gathered worship of the living God. Secondly, not everyone is going to have the gift of speaking in tongues, and that's okay. Not everyone is going to have the gift of speaking in tongues, and that's okay. Uh, For the last century, Christians have been sorting themselves in some measure based on the spiritual gifts that they have or that they value. Have you noticed that this has taken place? Uh, People who have uh, sort of a a, a teaching gift uh, where they can kind of reason with you from the study that they've done in Scripture, they sort themselves over here. People who have more intuitive or seemingly more supernatural type spiritual gifts, they sort themselves over there. And so what's happened, at least in our culture in the United States, is people with different spiritual gifts, instead of celebrating those differences, are saying, no, I want to be with people who are like me. And so you've got a church with a bunch of hands and a church with a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, eyeballs, and that's just not the way it's supposed to be. So instead of sorting ourselves by, uh, I want to be around people that have the same spiritual gift as me, let's remember what Paul says uh, earlier in this passage, that the fact that we all have different spiritual gifts is a feature, not a bug. Third, if you do not have, or if you do have this gift, then, as Paul encourages you to do here in this passage, pray to be able to interpret Because if not, you won't be able to build up others. It might be building you up to exercise this gift, but pray that you would be able to interpret so that you can share that interpretation in the gathering 
of God's people. That's the interpretation that you can share uh, here in, in gathered worship when it's appropriate uh, or in your community group because people understand what you're saying and can be built up. Fourth application, let's just keep in mind that not everything is fitting for gathered worship because not everything is understandable to the people gathered here. Not everything that we can do as Christians, not everything that we're free to do as believers is appropriate for gathered worship. I haven't had so much of a problem uh, with trying to sort these things out here at Indian Creek, but I have been a part of churches in the past where I've had to tell people, that's not really appropriate for gathered worship, okay? We're going to do whatever builds up everybody that's here in the gathering and helps them in their faith to grow. Intelligible speech builds up, but incomprehensible spectacle only confuses. So Paul says we need to limit the use of spiritual gift of speaking in tongues in gathered worship. But let's turn our attention now to the other spiritual gift he mentions in this text, namely the gift of prophecy. At the end of chapter 12, remember this, Paul had said we should seek the best gifts. You remember him saying that? He says earnestly desire the best gifts. And then in chapter 13, he tells us that the best gifts are the ones that are used in love for other people, not the flashiest or the most spectacular, but the ones that we can use to build others up in love. Okay, well, which gift is the best? Which is the most beneficial? The answer, at least for the Corinthian church, was the gift of prophecy. Not flashy as speaking in tongues, not as spectacular, but more edifying because the listeners were able to hear it and understand it. So here's the question that we need to answer. What is the gift of prophecy? What specifically is New Testament prophecy? You'd not be surprised, I'm sure, to learn that this question has kicked up a lot of debate. Uh, There are as many answers to this question, perhaps, as there are uh, authors who have written on the topic. And, And we'll talk about why that is in just a moment, but if you just look at the examples of prophecy, particularly in the New Testament, then you'll find, I think, that it's not just one very narrowly defined specific thing. It's a category of spirit-empowered communication, and it exists along a sort of spectrum. Uh, On the one side of the spectrum is prophecy in which the Holy Spirit gives specific words to human beings and moves them to record these words so that the resulting document is, in fact, the very word of God, okay? The words on the page are the word of God. That is a kind of prophecy. That's on one end of the spectrum. So I'll give you an example of that. Think about the book of Revelation. Uh, The book of Revelation is a prophecy. We're told that in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. So what happened in Revelation? The Holy Spirit of God moved the Apostle John to write exactly the words that the Holy Spirit wanted him to convey, record those for future generations, so that when you read the book of Revelation, every single word of that book is the word of God. That's a kind of prophecy. But remember, that's foundation work. That's apostolic work. That's the ministry of the apostles and the apostolic writers. The foundation is already built. So the Holy Spirit isn't going to tear it apart and tell us to rebuild it. He's not going to tell you to go back and redo the foundation. So what's happening today is at a different place along that spectrum. He's not telling you to sit down and write scripture. So if you come to me and you say, Jake, I've got 
some scripture that I want to add to the Bible, I'm going to tell you to hit the road, okay? Uh, it's That work is already done. But on the other end of the spectrum is the work of the Holy Spirit to communicate realities to believers in a way that lacks the specificity, the significance, or the permanence of Scripture, but is nevertheless the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So I'll give you a biblical example. In Acts 21, and you might want to just put that passage in your margin. We're not going to turn there for sake of time. But in Acts 21, uh, there's a group of believers gathered there with the Apostle Paul. And they tell him, that, that Luke tells us, they told him in the Holy Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. Now, Paul did go to Jerusalem. In other words, he didn't take the words that they spoke as the word of God. But Luke understands that what they were communicating was actually something that originated with an idea that that was put in their head by the Holy Spirit. So what's happened is, in Acts 21 at least, the Holy Spirit has given these believers uh, an impression or a, a sense or an idea that something is significant that's going to take place in the apostle's life. He's in danger. He's going to be in danger if he goes to Jerusalem. So they took that communication from the Holy Spirit. They put in their own words, Paul, don't go. And Paul recognizes, yes, that's a gift of the Holy Spirit, but your words are not necessarily the words of God. They're your words. That impression may have come from the Holy Spirit, but your words are not God's words. So uh, it's, 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 there's a distinction is what I'm trying to say. And I know it's a fine distinction, but it has massive practical applications. Uh, the Holy Spirit can communicate with someone who has a prophetic gift, and yet it's not an apostolic, foundational, permanently binding communication where the very words themselves are God's words. Do you see how scriptures like Revelation are unique? How they are different from the other ministries of the Holy Spirit in our lives directly. I mean, all of us would agree, even if you're sitting here and you're saying, Jake, I hear what you're saying, but I'm skeptical. I don't know if I agree with what you're saying. Fine. All of us would agree, though, that if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you're a child of God, right? This is the teaching of Romans chapter 8. So in other words, the Holy Spirit, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit uh, communicates with you in a powerful, undeniable way. You are a child of God. You belong to the family of God. He, he says, you're saved. You're a child of God. Christ died for you. You possess the Holy Spirit. You possess justification. And when you stand before God one day, you will be rescued from judgment and welcomed into God's presence. All of us would agree that the Holy Spirit communicates in that way to the individual believer, but that's not the same as me saying, okay, well, then I'm going to write that communication down and put it in the Bible. But it's still the Holy Spirit's ministry in our life. All of us would agree that the Holy Spirit illuminates our mind to understand spiritual things. We've already been through that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, but that doesn't mean that my uh, understanding of Scripture when I preach is on par with Scripture. It's something that we have to put under Scripture. That when you hear me preach, you would say, okay, I'm going to check it out, and I'm going to make sure that that lines up with Scripture before I agree with what you're saying, because you do not possess an authority that's equal with Scripture. So don't draw an equal sign 
between the prophetic gifts possessed by the apostles that led them to write scripture and the the prophetic gifts that the Holy Spirit is giving to believers today. They are similar, but they are not exactly the same. Uh, It's kind of like this, and forgive me if you feel like I'm belaboring the point, but I think the distinction is so important. Uh, Luke says in his gospel, okay, remember this from Luke chapter 1, he describes how he came about, uh, how, how he uh, wrote the gospel of Luke. He says, I, I interviewed people, I talked to the eyewitnesses. In other words, Luke's process was sort of like what a historian does when he does historical research. And then the words that Luke wrote in Luke's gospel and in the book of Acts actually was overseen by the Holy Spirit in such a way that the very words themselves are God's words. They are inspired scripture. Now listen, I can follow a process that's similar to Luke's. I can do research in the Bible. I can talk to believers, and I can write a sermon. But just because I've followed the same process as Luke doesn't mean that my words have the same authority as Luke's words because Luke's words are inspired and directly overseen by the Holy Spirit, and it's similar in the case of prophecy. Just because someone has an impression from the Holy Spirit, and that's similar or illustrative of the way that the book of Revelation or some other prophecy was written, doesn't mean that they have the same level of authority. Uh, I know we're in the weeds here, but we've got to make these critical distinctions. So I think we're ready to give a, a definition of New Testament prophecy, okay? What is prophecy? It is a category of communication in which the Holy Spirit impresses upon an individual to speak to others so that they might be built up, encouraged, comforted, or convicted. Uh, I know that's a very generic and broad definition, but it's it's a category of communication in which the Holy Spirit impresses upon the individual believer to communicate in a way that is designed to encourage, to comfort, or to convict. Uh, It might be inspired speech like the book of Revelation, or it might be merely the faintest impression that the believer then finds the words to express. Now, I realize that there are those in this room who may be uncomfortable with that level of breadth in defining the biblical gift of prophecy. But let me just remind you of something, and maybe it's something that you don't know, but uh, realize that prior to the 20th century, Believers were a lot more comfortable acknowledging the impression of some believers as the ministry of the Holy Spirit. See, now in our day, in 2023, we've sorted ourselves, right? We want to be in these different clumps or groups. But before the historical events of Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement, etc., those sortings weren't quite as neat and tidy as they are today. And so I want to give you some examples of this. Dr. Vern Poitras, in a 1996 article published in the Academic Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society, lists numerous examples of this sort of thing from church history. So he cites, for example, uh, for example a man named Samuel Rutherford, a dyed-in-the-wool Puritan, who had a hand in drafting the Westminster Standards. And Rutherford relates how men like John Huss and even Martin Luther uttered non-canonical prophecies and they came to be. Uh, He shares numerous examples of this. For example, John Knox, uh, the great uh, Scottish reformer, predicted the execution of the Lord of Grange and it took place. 
Uh, Rutherford goes on to explain how such prophecies differ from Scripture and how one can tell the difference between true and false gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, It's a fascinating account, but here's the point. Do not let your fear of abuses of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, your fear of what some other church is doing, control your understanding of what the Bible teaches. Let the Bible control how you understand those abuses. Don't let the abuses define your interpretation of Scripture. Let Scripture define your understanding of the abuses. The Holy Spirit's ministry today is different from the ministry of the apostles, but that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit isn't ministering today. Remember, everything that exists, literally everything, reveals God. Have you thought about that recently? That the heavens declare the glory of God? Everything that exists. He said back in Genesis chapter 1, let there be light, and there was light. He spoke And he said, let the earth bring forth plants and teem with animal life. And that word went out and it happened. So that means that everything that exists as a result of that word of God is in some way revealing God. Now, he did give us scripture because that's not enough for us to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to understand more in order to be saved, in order to have have salvation, okay? So he gave us scripture, but that's not to say that God isn't revealing himself through the things that he's made, through the light of your conscience, through the, the, the history of the world, and yes, through the gift of prophecy. So God can reveal his glory and goodness to us in other ways. He can confirm to our conscience, you're my child, you're in Christ. You really have the Holy Spirit. He can call to mind passages of Scripture at just the right time. Have you experienced this? He can lay on our heart a burden right in the middle of our work day or our exercise routine. Hey, you need, when you're done with this, you need to call Sally and tell her that you're praying for her. Why are we afraid to experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this way. I don't think we should be. Now, I'll tell you why we are afraid. It's because just like there were false prophets among the children of Israel, it's true that there are false teachers plaguing the people of God today. They're claiming to have a message from the Holy Spirit, but it's really a lie from hell. And so I want to leave you with a sort of aside, and then we'll kind of come back to the main idea. But I want to answer really quickly for this, uh, uh, just practically, how do I tell whether the message that I'm receiving or the impression that I'm receiving or the communication I'm getting from somebody else is from the Holy Spirit or in line with Scripture or it's a lie and something that needs to be avoided? Let me just give you four things. You could probably add to these, but four questions to ask about the communications that you're receiving. How can I know what's being said is truly from the Holy Spirit and not the whisperings of the enemy who masquerades as an angel of light? Well, first of all, you might ask, does this message go against Scripture? Does this message go against Scripture? I, I know that might sound obvious, but when your friend your fellow believer in Christ is standing there in front of you and they're telling you, God told me to say this. 
and you know it goes against the teachings of Scripture, the temptation's very strong for you to say, okay, well, maybe that does come from the Lord, and you get confused and muddled because you need to ask the question, does what is being said contradict Holy Scripture? Here's the point. God doesn't lie. God doesn't change his mind. He's unchanging. His word is settled, fixed, and foundational to the Christian life. So the Holy Spirit would never give you or anybody else a message that contradicts what he's already said because he doesn't change the things that he said. That's his character. Does the message go against Scripture? Second question, does this message bind believers in a way that Scripture does not warrant? Does this message bind believers in a way that Scripture does not warrant. In other words, is this message putting restrictions on me where the Bible gives me freedom? To me, the classic example of this, and no, this is not a joke, I've heard this happen, is the young man in Bible college who tells a girl it's God's will for us to get married. And somehow the Holy Spirit didn't communicate that to her. He just communicated that to the young man. And so he tells her, no, we need to get married. That's God's will. Listen, I'm telling you, that's something to be very suspicious of, all right? Uh, Because what he's doing, just in all seriousness, uh, is he's binding someone in an area where the Scripture has given her freedom to choose and and use wisdom to to exercise her own discernment. I'll give you another example. Uh, Paul clearly, on numerous occasions states that the old covenant is fulfilled in Christ, and therefore uh, we can worship on certain days or we can treat every day alike. We can uh, restrict ourselves in our diet or we can eat uh, the things that, are, that we're free to eat according to the book of Acts. There's freedom there. The Bible tells me that. I don't need to question it. And so when somebody comes and says, no, we've got to do this on this day or you can't eat these things, I already know that's not from the Holy Spirit because what's happening is that person is trying to bind me in an area where Scripture keeps me free. So just really practically, if you get an impression or a feeling or a sense that you think may come from the Holy Spirit and it applies to somebody other than yourself, you need to be really careful and discerning about how you communicate that. Don't walk up to somebody after church today and say, uh, you know, God told me that you need to give $1,000 in the offering. Okay, now that would be great if, if somebody gave $1,000 in the offering, but it's not your uh, job to tell that person that, okay? Um, God told me to tell you you should become a missionary. God's not going to tell you. He'll tell that person, okay? Uh, instead, how about God brought you to mind the other day. He's given you a unique opportunity to be generous, and I just want to encourage you in that and strengthen you in that and, and, and uh, pray for you in that or, or something. You know, don't bind people uh, where Scripture gives freedom. We don't like it when someone, said, when someone puts words in our mouth, right? I don't like to hear through the grapevine, you know, Pastor Jake said this when I never said this. I don't like to hear, Dad said that, when dad never said that, how much more with God? He doesn't want to hear us say, God told me when he never told you. So we've got to be careful about what we communicate. Does it contradict scripture? Does it bind believers in a way that scripture doesn't warrant? Third question, does this message claim to be on par with scripture? Does this message claim to be on par with scripture? Then run away. Scripture is unique. The foundation is already laid. We've already talked about that. Do not believe a message that claims to be on par with Scripture. Fourth question. 
Does this person's life look like the life of Christ or look like the life of a false teacher described in the New Testament? Does this person's life look like the life of Christ or the life of a false teacher described in the New Testament? Paul's life looked like Jesus' life, right? He suffered. He was humble. He followed the Calvary road. The books of 2 Peter and Jude describe for us what a false teacher looks like. They're very different. They're greedy for financial gain. So yes, anyone who claims any kind of spiritual authority whose life is characterized by greed or conspicuous consumption is someone that you, not, you ought to have some suspicion of. Uh, false teachers despise the authority of the local church. That comes up numerous times in those books. Uh, one of the easiest ways to tell if somebody is trustworthy or not is to ask yourself, is this person submitting himself to the authority of a local congregation and to wise elders, or is he uh, a maverick who just goes off on his own? Uh, if, if he's despising the authority of the local church, he's someone that should not be trusted. False teachers love to be preeminent. They love the glory. They live a lifestyle characterized by fleshly desires. They, they're clouds without water. You know what that's like here in Texas, right? Uh, we see the clouds, and now, thankfully, recently, they've actually come with the rain. But so often, we see those clouds, and there is no rain. We hear the lightning, and there is no storm. Uh, that's what a false teacher is like. They promise freedom, but all they bring is slavery. They say you can be free, but their followers are enslaved to sin. Ask yourself the question, is this person's life look like Christ, or does it look like the false teachers described in the New Testament. And there are probably more questions that you can ask. I'll leave that for you to discuss in your community group, but here's the point. We can trust the Holy Spirit of God to exalt his word and to care for his church. And if you are studying the scripture and you're seeking to obey him in the context of a local church, you're surrounded by wise believers, then you will not be flying blind. God is going to take care of you because behind this instruction is a very important idea. When I say that intelligible speech is superior to incomprehensible spectacle, behind that is the character of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he desires to be known. He desires to reveal himself savingly to those who don't deserve to know anything about him. Did you notice the quotation that Paul gives in verse 21? Uh, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 28 there when he says, uh, to, uh, with, with the tongues of, uh, I'm sorry, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. And he's talking about how tongues are assigned from, uh, for unbelievers and not for believers. Here's what, here's what I think Paul's saying. If you go back to Isaiah 28, uh, you'll see this. In the original context, Paul, or I'm sorry, Isaiah is giving a message to Israel's proud leaders. And they've said to Isaiah essentially this, your message is too simple. It's for children. It's too easy to understand. We're more sophisticated than that. And so they were embracing this lifestyle of sin because they were too proud to embrace the message of the prophet. And so what God communicates through Isaiah is this. He says, okay, you haven't listened to my message. You haven't listened to the simple warnings that I've given you as a prophet. So here's what's going to happen. By the lips of foreigners, I'm going to communicate my message, and you're going to know it's going to come from me. 
when those Assyrian invaders attack the walls of the city of Jerusalem or the city of Samaria, you're going to hear them cursing and their murderous cries in Assyrian in a language that you don't know. And you're going to remember that you chose to reject the message of the gospel, the, the good news that God wants to save you. And here's what, here's what Paul's saying when he quotes that. He's saying, listen, God's gift to his church is not to lead us into confusion. Confusion is what goes along with judgment. He wants us to be built up because his desire is to be known and his desire is for you to be saved. His desire is even for unbelievers who walk into this room to hear a message they can understand so that they can bow the knee before God and and, and recognize that they are sinners in need of forgiveness and call out for salvation to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, his message to us today is not confusing. It's not incomprehensible spectacle. It's, I want to be known. I'm inviting you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm inviting you to repent of your sin today and believe the gospel. This is the God we serve. This is the God we celebrate today. The one who sent his son to die for sinners. The one who's calling out to you today. Repent from your sin and believe. Be known. Know me, God says. And that's what he wants for us to do. Even as we transition to the celebration of the Lord's table, the bread and the fruit of the vine illustrate for us in a picture even a child can understand that he desires to be known. Did you know that God wants you to know him today? God wants you to understand your standing before him today. He doesn't want you to be confused. He wants you to know. And so when we celebrate the Lord's table today, this is the God we're celebrating a God who would not be known if he didn't choose to reveal himself, a God that we could not understand or grasp if he didn't choose to graciously open up, uh, pull back the curtain and show us his glory and his mercy. But he has done that. He's shown us that he wants to be known, so let's not take his mercy for granted today. Let's know the Lord and let's help others know him today. Would you join me now in prayer as we prepare our hearts for the celebration of the table of the Lord? Father, there's so much in this passage that, uh, so much there to unpack. And, and Father, you, you have graciously, we just want to praise you because you've graciously sent your spirit. Not so that we would be more confused. Not so that we would just be wowed and amazed by spectacle, but so that you might be known. So that we can build, be built up in our faith. Father, I pray that if there's anybody here who has not yet believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is in that position of an outsider, that you would, using the testimony of the believers here today, draw them to yourself and invite them to believe in the gospel and be saved. And Father, we pray that today would be the day that that takes place. Lord, we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.